Well, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for the gift of, of Christ. We thank you for the gift of people, the opportunity that we have to be together to glorify and worship you through singing, through looking at your word, through being together. We pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts at this time to cause us to know you more and follow you more. Strengthen us with your spirit. Cause us to, cause our faith to deepen in you. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in one of those moments where, where something goes really right and you know that you were a key part in making that thing go right. And then somebody thanks you or thanks, gives thanks for that event or that thing having gone right and they thank somebody else. I've been in those moments. I've been in those moments where, where I, I thought to myself that that the event was about Jesus. And then when credit was given and not given to me, I realized that maybe the event was really about me. And that's the only conclusion I can come to. If I care that somebody else got credit for it instead of me, then in some respect, in my mind, it, should, it must have been that this was about me, not about Jesus, because if it's about Jesus, then what does it really matter who gets the credit? It does matter. It really does matter because our hearts are broken in such a way that we almost can't get away from the desire for accolade, the desire to be recognized for that which we've done. And then when we feel like it's given to somebody else, we have trouble. This morning, we're not really going to look at how to not care about getting applauded or thanked. But there is an element to where we have something that happens in our lives that is, that is central to who we are, where when the focus and the credit is all given somewhere else, there's a little bit of us that struggles. So we're going to read again, and I promise this is the last week we are specifically and intentionally in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, but we are going to read again Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, and you're going to see on the screen, at least I think you will, uh, Julie's going to tell me if I'm right, that the phrase that we're going to pay attention to this morning is colored differently. That's not in the scriptures, that's just so that we can recognize the focal point of this morning. Let's read this, Ephesians 1, 3 to 19, blessed be the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we also have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his, of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it to the praise of his glory. I would imagine not many of us are truly familiar with the phrase, sola dea gloria. In fact, I have to admit, I'm very familiar with it, and I had it written down and spelled wrong. Julie caught it by Googling it, and I'm thrilled that she did. There's five solas in the Reformation, right? Maybe you don't know that. There are. Martin Luther came up with five, or didn't come up with, promoted five solas, it means onlys, in the scripture. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. Sola, now I'm in the wrong order. By faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Sola Dea Gloria. All the other ones are S-O-L-A. This one's S-O-L-I. Anyway, I almost, I almost made a huge fool of myself. So instead of almost doing that, I just told you about it so that we're all clear how this goes. So, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And there's an, an added word in that from what we see in this passage. What we see in the passage is to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And the, the Latin phrase says to the praise of his glory alone. So let's look at these three passages, or three, three verses Ephesians 1, 6, he says that it's to the praise of his glorious grace. What is? That God predestined us to be adopted into his family is to the praise of his glory. Go down to verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We have our faith, our hope in Christ alone, the only focal point of our faith, the only one able to save. He becomes the pinnacle. He becomes the Savior, the only, to the praise of His glory. And then down in 14, He's given us the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We talked about that last week, that we have a, a guarantee because of the Holy Spirit for our inheritance, which is our salvation, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have the Holy Spirit sealing our hearts so that we are guaranteed in eternity with Christ to God's glory. So in three different ways, referencing the three different persons of the Trinity, all regarding salvation and in other ways as well, but specifically salvation, our salvation is to his glory. It does not say to the benefit of us who are saved. 
So when it comes to our salvation, the center point of the glory and the honor of our salvation is not us being saved. It's Christ being exalted. It's God being honored. It's the Holy Spirit being lauded. Not anything to do with us. And salvation is perhaps the most important part of our life, right? We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. We had gotten that which was deserved to us, the wages, the right payment for what we've done, which is death. But God offers us something different. But the focal point of that something different is His glory, not our benefit. So it stands to reason that if salvation is for His glory, not about us who are the recipients, then so our whole lives should be about His glory, not about us in this moment. Yet, how often is that really true? How often is it really true for us that our lives are actually lived out about worshiping God, glorifying Him in all things? Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, one of the things that, that happens for, for answering the question, how does this even look? What does this even mean? It, it means that selfishness is gone, right? It can't be about us. If it's about him, it has to be about him. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Quick point that does not mean we degrade ourselves. It means we over-elevate everybody else, okay? We do not elevate others by saying how bad we are other than when that matches reality, right? There are times where we are sinful, we are broken, we are wrong, and we can't ignore that. But you don't artificially degrade yourself in order to have this verse be true. You actually intentionally raise others above maybe what they even should be. But that's a different sermon for a different time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Another way to translate that is even more radical. Let each of us look not to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Meaning your job and my job is not to pay attention to what we need or what we want, what we'd like to get, but to pay attention to what others need, what others would want, what others need to get. And then I pay attention to you, and each of you to each other. You pay attention to me, and thereby our needs are actually met because everybody else is looking out for us. We're not having to do it ourselves. That is actually, again, a different sermon for a different time. But the whole point here is that the focal point comes off of us. If you think that you're really good at this, let me just ask a quick question. When it comes to when pizza is delivered at your house or at Thanksgiving when the pies are put out, how many of us look and say, that piece right there is the best piece? 
As soon as we say that is the best piece, the one that I'd like, what we're really saying is I deserve the best piece of the pie or the best piece of pizza. All of you can get the second best or the, the leftovers. Really? That's what we do. We hurry in line or hurry to get to the place where we come there. And we're like, oh, this is the best piece to take. I will take it. Because we care deeply more about ourselves than other people. Please know, I always look for the best piece of pizza. <laughs> this is not something that I have mastered. And, and I do it before I even realize I've done it. I'm like, ooh, that one's a little bigger. I want that one. It's natural to our broken state. But the scripture calls us to be unnatural to our broken state. So how, how do we do that? How do we live in such a way that we are actually looking out for the interests of others, actually caring about other people, not ourselves? How do we live in such a way as we're actually living to worship Christ, not bring glory to ourselves? If we back up just a couple verses, Paul tells us how, but it still makes almost no sense. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says this. For to me... To live is Christ. To die is gain. Or to die gains more Christ. So, so for me, Paul says, my life is gaining Christ and dying is just more of that. Which puts all of the focus on Paul's life where? On Christ. This is Paul. Maybe the most gifted of all the people we read about in the scriptures after Jesus. And for him, his life is not Paul and Paul's ability, it's Christ. As I said, it doesn't really answer the question. Because that's a great idea, but we don't even know how to live that out. Because when we live it out that our life is not our own, but it's Christ then he's glorified. Paul's going to go further with that back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he writes this. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, which means what? I have been put to death. Let's not mistake that. Crucifixion was one thing and only one thing, your death in the most painful way imaginable. Jesus furthers this back in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, Jesus says in verse 27, but I... I do not have the right verse there. 1027. I have my autocorrector over here for me. <laughs> nope, that's the next one. I have no idea what I did. This is the second time I've done this in two months, and it's only happened a couple times in my life. But I don't know where this verse is. I was looking for the verse where Jesus says that if you want to follow him, you will take up your cross. 
Okay, and he said to them, okay, we're just going to start reading verse 23 because I was really close. I don't know what I wrote down. Sometimes you have to understand if your handwriting is so bad that you can't follow it when you're taking notes, you should learn to write better. That's what you should do. So Luke chapter 9, starting in 23, and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to follow Christ, you take up your cross daily and follow him. And the cross, again, is an example, is a, is a statement of just one thing. The death of yourself. Because that's all it was used for. We hang crosses to remind us of what Christ did But when he said to take up your cross, there was no question that what he meant, what he meant was you recognize your death, which requires a recognition of our own selflessness. But but again, that doesn't really answer how do we do this? The, The concepts are there, and sometimes we need the concepts before we can build on those to say, what should we then do? But so far, we have great concepts and very little feet on the ground to move. So what do we do? How do we live in such a way that Christ is glorified in us at all times? How do we live in such a way because to glorify him is to worship him? How do we live in such a way that we worship him all the time? Are we all supposed to go join a monastery and become monks who walk around and chant old chants all day? No. That's not what we're supposed to do. Are we all supposed to become pastors and churches? No. So then what do we do? What does the scripture call of us if we're going to glorify him in everything, if it's going to be about the praise of his glory, if it's going to be about worshiping him? Now, Luke 10, 27. And this one's right because Julie agreed with me. And Jesus answered. The question was, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The guy, Jesus says, what does the law say? And the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to live a life that is sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, you'll notice if you're familiar, if you were here a few weeks ago, Rick talked about the Shema, and the Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, and it starts out, I had to memorize it in seminary for my Hebrew class, and so I can't think of the Shema without actually thinking that class, and it says, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Va'ahafta et Adonai Eloheka. Labo Lababaka, Ubukol Napska, Ubukol Meodeka. Now, 
that is not done simply so that you say, wow, he really did go to school. But I do want you to know I did go to school. (laughs) But it's to say that there's something in there. It lists three things. This lawyer listed four things. Right? Why? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, which is the seat of your intelligence as far as the ancient Hebrew mind and thoughts went. That wasn't the seat of love, right? It was the seat of thought, of intelligence. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, your soul. But soul didn't just mean like, like sort of how we think of soul. Your soul was of all of your very allness is sort of how you would translate it. And love the Lord your God with all your might. So with all the strength, the physical prowess that you have, with all of the intellectual prowess that you have, and with all of the allness that stems from who you are, your personality, your efforts, your desires, your passions, all of these things sort of wrapped together in this allness of who you are. Love the Lord your God with that as well. That's what we are to do. But Deuteronomy doesn't stop there. There's like a lot of chapters after this where it says stuff. But what does it say in the very next verses? And this is easily missed. We easily forget about this because the next verses tell us what to do with that information, not just to hold that information. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lay down and when you rise. You shall talk about them with your children, right? That's specifically to whom it's about. In what facets of life? Every facet of every day. So far as to say, when you, when you sit and when you walk, when you're not doing much and when you're active, when you're at home and when you're out, right? That's, you're walking out of your home and you're being active. You sit usually in your home when you're not active. When you lay down and when you rise, That pretty well covers everything. That's when you talk about them and teach them to your children, but it's not even done. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. It's called a phylactery, not a word that we typically use, but the box that they would have put on their their forearm or on their forehead. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. So, here's what we have. If the words of the law are written in scrolls that you have on your arm or on your forehead, and you're walking around, everybody sees that you've got that, right? 
When you write it on your door frame, every salesman who comes to your house sees what's there. They probably didn't have salesmen who came to their house, but let's just pretend for a moment. And they would put it on their gate so that everybody who came near their house would see it. You weren't directly teaching them. This isn't standing on street corners and yelling at people. That's not what it's about. This is about having that reality so evident in your life that everyone who comes in contact with you sees it even if you're not saying it. But then when you've got your children or those to whom you're close, you're teaching it to them with the words from your mouth, following the actions of your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Teach it to your children. Show it to the people around you. How? When? We don't really have to answer why, because why is because Christ is preeminent in life, because Christ is preeminent in our salvation, because Christ is preeminent in all things, and we're living soli Dea gloria. What about when you're having fun? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Eating, that was a form of entertainment back then. It probably isn't so much now. Yeah, yeah, it's still a form of entertainment. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us get access to more food than we really need. So we eat for entertainment and fun and being together with people, not because, oh, we're going to die by the end of the day if we don't eat, right? I certainly know that I have access to more food than I need. Eating or drinking or whatever you do, do it all to his glory. But beyond that, it's not just entertainment. Who were these people eating with? Their family and close friends. Who do you typically eat with? Your family and close friends. Most of us don't go to restaurants. I've been in restaurants. We don't go to restaurants and sit at a table where we're hoping three other strangers we've never met are gonna sit down and enjoy a meal with us. In fact, if they do, if you sit down at a restaurant and then some random person sits down with you, you're gonna be like, dude, there's another table over there. That's where you should sit. Because you do that with those you're close to. Relationally, our relationships are intended to be to his glory. Our entertainment is intended to be to his glory. So that means if you don't know how to use an aspect of your entertainment to glorify Jesus, stop. Whatever the entertainment is, stop. Because if it can't or doesn't glorify Christ in your doing of it, you shouldn't do it. I know that sounds sort of extreme. It's because it's sort of extreme. But it's expected of us. It's the expectation of the Scripture on our lives. That that which doesn't bring honor to Christ is jettisoned for Him. Going even further, 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your job, regardless of what it is, provided that it isn't owning a brothel, right? Because there are certain things that, that cannot be done, no matter how you twist it, turn it, and try it, cannot be done to Christ's glory because the thing itself inherently defies who he is. Putting that aside, I haven't seen a brothel here, so I assume none of you own a brothel. You are to work hard as to the Lord, regardless of what that job is. Because he's glorified by hard work. He is not glorified by overwork. He is not glorified by workaholics. He is glorified by hard work. When your work is done, you're to go teach to your family. You can't teach to your family by never being with them, guys, particularly. If you avoid your family for your work, you've failed no matter what your work is. Even if your work is being a pastor, if I avoid my family for my work, I have failed before I've started. But I am to work hard and heartily to the Lord because each one of us is given a different segment of the population of this community based on what we do to engage you will meet people I will never have a chance to meet unless you bring them here and introduce them to me. I will meet people you will never have a chance to meet unless I bring them to you and introduce them to you based on what we do. And we go through life saying, of these people, how can I use my talents, my gifts, that which God has given to me to help them know him more. To equip them if they're saints. To bring the gospel to them if they're not. How can I bring what I have, what God has given to me, and use it in this case? Regardless of your job, you do that. Regardless of what entertainment you choose, provided that it's an entertainment that can glorify him, regardless of that, you do it in your relationships, in your entertainment, in your friends. We say, how can Christ be honored in this? How can he be my focal point? How can I use the relationships that I build in this moment to glorify him and make him known? That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every aspect about you does that. And if you do, you will automatically love your neighbor as yourself because it's the only right response to truly loving him in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your son and this time to look at your word. Lord, we pray that you would... Show each one of us what it means to live a life that is to your glory and honor, that is centralized on who you are. 
We pray, Father, that you would continue to work in each one of us to help us recognize that, see that. And Lord, we just pray that you would change us to make us know you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.